morning. Um, So the Bible reading today is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 to 23. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thanks, Caro. Morning, folks. Great to have you along here today. A quick call out actually to Youth Church. If you're in Youth Church, it's your chance to head out with Nick and Darcy. Remember, that includes uh, Year Fives as well. You're included in Youth Church. An excellent opportunity for you to go out and be encouraged together as well. Uh, My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. A special uh, special welcome if you're visiting uh, for the first time or for the first of a number of times. Uh, It's good to have you along. We're in this series on Philippians. We're wrapping it up today. One of the frustrations and fears I have as a preacher is that it's always more in God's word than I've got time or ability to, uh, to unpack. And so we're going to pray now and ask that God would help us as we do, that we might not miss what he's made plain. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray it simple and we pray it plain. We pray that you, pray that you by your spirit, as we turn to your word, would help us to learn the secret of contentment and find it through trust in Jesus. We ask it for your glory and for our good. Amen. As I said, folks, um, if you have your Bibles there, turn open to Philippians uh, chapter 4. We're going to be dealing in that section. If you don't have a Bible, go and grab one from the back. If you don't own a Bible, congratulations, you do now. Write your name in that one. It's yours. We want to make sure that you have access to God's Word at your disposal all the time. It's an excellent gift to be able to give somebody. But we're in this final series of Philippians. We've covered so much ground. We've covered a lot of ground from the beginning. And today what I'm trying to do is to tie it off with arguably... The central idea of Paul's letter to the Philippians, this secret of contentment. 
Now, I say arguably because you'd, you could and you'd be welcome to disagree that this is the central theme. And even if you do, though, I would assume that you would agree with me that it's a very important issue. The secret of contentment. And one of the reasons I'm so convinced that it is so important is because Christian contentment is actually what Paul is speaking about and teaching here. Christian contentment itself is the key to unlocking so many of the things that Paul has been exhorting the Philippians to think and do throughout his letter. In fact, it lies at the heart of so much of the Christian gospel, this contentment in Christ. And it's no different in this section. We're focusing today on Philippians 4, 8 through to 23. In fact, just just have a look. Just dial up that page in your Bible. Skim through this section. As I've been reading it through these last couple of weeks, three big topics seem to jump out at me. We've got those uh, first little bit. Verses 8 and 9 seem to talk about how Christians should think and act generally. It's the, you know, the whatever is right, noble, pure, think on these things and put them into practice, that idea. How do you think and act as a Christian? There's one sort of issue. And you've got the topic of financial and material support for gospel and gospel workers. It's there in 4 verse 10. It's there again from verses 14 to 19 where Paul is praising God and the Philippians for their generosity in supporting his, his, his gospel ministry. And then sandwiched in the middle, you've got verses 10 to 13. And we've got Paul's comments on contentment, which include that mouthwatering statement There in the middle of verse 12, where he says, I have learned the secret of being content. As I said, that's a mouth-watering statement, isn't it? I've learned the secret of being content. I'm going to spend most of our time here, the bulk of our time, focused on this particular idea and argue that this secret to contentment, it is this secret to contentment that's actually enabled the Philippian church to radically change what they think and do including their practice of financial and material support for gospel and gospel workers. It's because they've got this idea of the secret of contentment that actually that has led to a masses of change in how they think and what they do, even in terms of their material support. But let's dive in and see where we see this and why this is so clear from the text as a central, central issue. In fact, let me ask you, just off the top, how valuable is the concept of contentment or or better still how valuable is the reality the reality of being content have you ever wondered this have you ever pondered that question how precious is the state of contentment so it's my inkling that you've it's my suggestion you've got an inkling of how precious contentment really is mostly because we can all readily identify areas in our life where we feel discontent we don't like it do we I mean, our world is one that is filled with people who feel discontented, dissatisfied, unfulfilled on a myriad of issues for a myriad of reasons. I mean, think about it. It is possible to feel discontent over your relationship status. Too many friends and not enough time. Too much time and not enough friends. Or maybe it's the lack of a spouse that causes you discontentment. Or maybe it's the spouse you've got that causes you discontentment. You know, people feel discontent over their work and their wages, often feeling overworked and underpaid. And as, as, uh, sorry, as Luke mentioned, you've got the holiday discontentment. I'm sure we've all been here and realised and felt this, where you imagine and you anticipate your next holiday break as the magic reset button to melt away all the stresses and pressures of life, only to get there and it's raining 
And if you've got kids, they've got nits. And it feels like you're back to work with your head spinning before you've blinked, instantly brooding a new and profound case of discontentment. And I'm not even, I've not even mentioned discontentment that comes with body image issues. I'm not even going to go there. Apparently I'm too um, short for my weight or too heavy for my height or something like that. My nose is pointy and I've got a teeth like a row of broken bottles, but I'm completely content. In fact, it's the whole advertising industry is based off the fact that people are discontent, but desire contentment and are willing to buy it if they can. In fact, if you're not discontent, that's the first aim of advertising. It's to make you feel discontent so that they can sell you their contentment, be it in a can or in a cream or in the latest gadget that utilizes space-age technology, sure to satisfy your every longing, often for four easy payments of $45.95. Postage and handling not included. Now, whether you love them or hate them, advertising experts are onto something, aren't they? Advertising experts, this industry is on... It's Actually, it's why it's a $13 billion industry in Australia. That's just online advertising, mind you. Online advertising is a $13 billion industry in Australia. It's a $240 billion industry in America. But they've recognised something here. They're recognising, they're recognising something that is true and deep in the human experience. It's this extraordinary value of contentment. The glaring obvious problem with them is they've missed where to find it or in their case how to sell it. And by and large the world and the consumers that make it up have made the mistake along with them. Friends, Paul is having none of this consumeristic contentment in his letter to the Philippians. What Paul is talking about here is a genuine contentment which is a Christian contentment and it's not found in stuff it's not found in a, in a husband or a house or a holiday or a hound and a brood of hankle biters. I had to keep the H going, sorry. And it's not found in savings. It's not found in your net worth on paper. And it's not found even deep within yourself, the very popular, modern and completely wrong mantra that all you need to do is just look deep inside and learn to embrace yourself more. No, the genuine contentment that Paul is talking about here is a Christian contentment. It is a God-given satisfaction with anything and everything, be they possessions, status or situation. It is a God-given satisfaction with anything and everything because you know and trust it is from God's hands and it will work out for your good and for God's glory. That's a definition, I want to say, of Christian contentment. I mentioned something similar Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan writer in the 1600s, wrote similar. That was my sort of breakdown of his very antiquated, wordy English. It is a, sat- a God-given satisfaction with anything and everything because you know and trust it is from God's hands. It's for your good and for his glory. And so what does Paul specifically teach then in this passage from Philippians? What does he specifically teach about this kind of contentment? Well, if you've got your outline there, if you've picked up one up on the, on the way in, it's the first or well, the next point on your outline. Here it is. What does he teach us? He teaches that Christian contentment is a reality that is completely and entirely independent of your physical circumstances, no matter what they are. In fact, look at where Paul says this. This is not me just sort of plucking it out of my ear. 
This is Paul speaking to the Philippians. Pick it up with me from verse 11. Paul's just praised the Philippians for their material gift to him, but he quickly, he quickly moves to ensure that they know that genuine contentment, that is Christian contentment, is in no way tied to outward circumstances. Read it from verse 11 with me. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Can you hear this? Paul has learned contentment, whatever the circumstances. He says he's learned the secret to be content in any and every situation. And remember, folks, he is not blowing smoke here. Paul is not waxing philosophical from an ivory tower, sipping champagne and eating beluga caviar. He's writing this from prison. And it's not the first time he's been in prison. In fact, have a quick squeeze. Come with me. Have a quick squeeze at some of the circumstances of Paul's life that have led him up to this situation. It'll come up on your screen, but if you're a quick Bible flicker, flick to 2 Corinthians 11 and from 20 verse, uh, sorry, verse 23 and onwards, have a quick flick at some of the, of the circumstances he's found himself in up to this point. He wrote 2 Corinthians probably about five years before he wrote the letter to the Philippians. Here you'll notice that Paul speaks of multiple near-death experiences. He speaks of multiple beatings, lashes from the Jews, rods by the Romans, stones from his enemies. He's been shipwrecked three times. Who gets shipwrecked once? He's been shipwrecked three times. He spent a day at night adrift in the open sea. He's felt danger and opposition from every angle, be it the environment or the elemental forces or phony friends. He says he spent sleepless nights, exposed, hungry, thirsty, cold. And, and he's not throwing a pity party for himself when he mentions all these and he re, when he recounts these things. He recalls them so that we might know with certainty that when he says any and every situation, he's not mucking about. When he says he's learnt the secret of contentment, whatever the circumstances, he's fully aware of the enormity of that claim. And he wants the Philippians to know, he wants us to know with clarity that the contentment he speaks of is completely independent of the personal, physical experiences one happens to be met with. Now that's actually really good news, folks. That is actually really encouraging news to reflect on personally. It is really encouraging news, especially if you've got traumatic experiences in your past, which I know some of you here have. It's really encouraging if you are presently dealing with difficulty, which some of you are. It even covers hardships that you may encounter in the future, future which all of us will, because Paul is speaking here of a contentment that is an unshakable, imperishable, indescribable inner satisfaction and peace that sits over your circumstances. Get this right. It sits over your circumstances. It doesn't mean that the painful, difficult circumstances disappear and it doesn't prevent them from ever happening again, but it's a satisfaction and peace that is so rich and deep and all-consuming that it dwarfs everything else around it. 
It's the kind of contentment so vast and so precious that even the most horrific circumstances or experience of life will fade into insignificance by comparison. Can you imagine that? Can you feel, can you, can you really grasp that? How does that work for parents who have had to bury a child? How can that be true for victims of abuse? Does that compute in your mind? I'll be honest, I struggle to understand with my limited understanding how this can be, but it is precisely the promise that God has made to his people. I could go to lots of places, but let me go to a well-worn one. Romans 8.28 will flick up on the screen. For we know that in all things, all things, not some things, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Friends, that's the language of Christian contentment that Paul is getting at right here. And it's priceless. Well, the $64 million question then is, how do you get that kind of contentment? What's its source? What's its origin? Paul, what's the secret? And it's as simple as profound as this, folks. Here it is. The secret of Christian contentment is found exclusively in union with Christ. That is to say, the source of his contentment in whatever circumstance he found himself in comes from his personal relationship and connection to Jesus. This concept that I will call union with Christ, I'm not picking that up by um, this by an accident, or phrases like this, or being in Christ, it's Paul's favourite way of describing his relationship and the relationship of all genuine Christians to their Saviour. He uses this constantly through the New Testament. This concept of union with Christ, often picking up the particular phrase in Christ. Let me give you a quick sample. Romans 6, 11. In the same way, he says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ, uh, sorry, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 26. So... In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, that is a small smattering of the many occasions that Paul will use this specific phrase in Christ. And I could go on with many other examples where Paul or indeed other gospel writers will speak of the same concept, this same deep, personal, all-consuming and all-surpassing connection to Christ that is a secret of contentment. He doesn't use this specific phrase in Christ in this passage here, but the concept is absolutely undergirding all of it. In fact, look at verse 413. In fact, start again with me at verse 12. This is what Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 4. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And here's the secret, verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Do you hear that? All this 
I can do through him who gives me strength. This is the secret of Christian contentment, folks. It is a secret of genuine contentment. This is what keeps Paul warm on the inside when he's cold on the outside. This is what nourished and sustained him spiritually when he was hungry and thirsty physically. This is what guarded and protected him mentally and emotionally when he was threatened and mistreated. It was the divine strengthening that comes from being connected with Christ through faith and it is entirely a gift of God. Now, I can't labour this point enough. I can't labour this point enough. As I said earlier, this is the key that unlocks so much of what Paul teaches and actually even more so, doubly important, I think it is that you understand this verse and the concept properly because it's one of the most, if you bear with me here, it's one of the most understood, misunderstood rather, misquoted, misapplied verses in the Bible. People often read Philippians 4.13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength, and think it means something like, oh, Jesus will enable me to do anything I put my mind to. Have you ever heard that idea before? How many coffee cups or t-shirts printed have you seen with that sort of sentiment on it? In fact, it's why you'll see it tattooed on people like mixed martial artists, John Jones. Have a look at him up here. Philippians 4.13, tattooed across his chest. I don't think he's talking about contentment. Or famous American footballers, a gridiron player, Tim Tebow, Tim, Tim Tebow, Christian guy, put it on his little little things on his eyes. I don't know why this looks tough, but Philippians 4.13. Olympic gold medalists have got it tattooed on their body, like Brittany Rees, apparently even actresses and singers. I think that's what she is, Selena Gomez. I don't know, I'm putting it in there to try to pretend that I'm culturally hip and cool. <laughs> apparently she's got it tattooed on her hip. My problem is... How they read and how they reflect and how they apply this is not even close to what it means in the context that it's used here. This is not Jesus will enable me to do anything I put my mind to. That is a tragic underappreciation of the power and the significance of the actual meaning, which is all about genuine, genuine contentment. And it's in Christ who strengthens that Christians can be learning to be calm in calamity, humble in prosperity, hopeful in adversity, secure and assured in success or failure. That's genuine contentment. That's Christian contentment in Christ. In fact, just in case you're not fully convinced of the value of this contentment that Paul speaks, let me give you an illustration of just how profound and precious God-given gift of contentment in Christ really is. It's a little thought experiment I read a while back. Imagine you win a random prize, a random raffle prize, and the prize is an all-expenses-paid six-week getaway. And you've got two packages or two options to choose from. The first package is a five-star experience all the way. You get to go, you get to choose where you go. You get to stay in all the fanciest hotels. You get to eat at all the finest restaurants, be driven around in the fastest cars at the speed limit. You get to be first in line at any and every major attraction you please. But there's a catch. Of course there's a catch. There's a catch. The catch is that for every moment of that six-week period, you will be beset by an inescapable discontent. So dark and so deep that no matter how flash the experience is, no matter how much you anticipated it in the past, you will be unable to find any satisfaction in it. There's no contentment. (laughs) That's option A. Option B is you'll be blindfolded, taken to a remote 
prison in a desert setting. You're kept in a dark, cramped cell, infested with rats and cockroaches, sharing an open bucket as a toilet, which is only changed every other day, and you're sharing it with a a multitude of other prisoners. And the desert heat and the smell from the bucket combine to make the air so thick that it's difficult to breathe. You'll endure endure regular beatings, You'll be fed on scraps of food and just enough water to keep you physically alive. But you'll also be gifted a supernatural contentment that is so real and so close that though the sights and the sounds and the pain you experience is genuine, it will not offset your deep sense of joy inside. So much so that you'll actually later look back on those days, those six weeks, as the best moments of your life. Which option are you choosing? Which option would you choose? You see, if you realise that option B is the better option, even if you can't quite comprehend how that could be, if you realise that option B is the better option, then you've understood the real value and the real preciousness of the genuine contentment that Paul is speaking about here. It's why Paul could be in prison, feet in stocks and singing. It's because it's contentment that is found in Christ alone and it's a contentment that is no way dependent on your physical circumstances. Friends, is that you? Do you know that kind of contentment? Do you desire that kind of contentment? Are you learning by God's grace that kind of supernatural contentment through a personal relationship with Christ Jesus? The contentment that has the power to overshadow every horror of the past, every hardship of the present, every conceivable curly conundrum of the future. You should. You should want it. You should desire it. It's more valuable than gold and it'll last longer too. But if you've not yet got hold of this contentment in Christ, I want to say don't just flip out yet. You haven't missed out on this opportunity. This is not one of those time-limited offers like so many of the marketing campaigns you'll find on television. You haven't missed out. In fact, you may have realised what you're missing out, but you haven't missed out. In fact, this is the next point in your outline. If you're following along there, have a look. Because did you notice that the contentment that Paul speaks of was something that he had to learn? That's encouraging. He mentions this fact twice, verse 11 and 12. He's learned contentment. I've learned the secret of contentment. The obvious question again is, how did he learn it? And again, beware of worldly ways of thinking here. This is not something you learn like from a self-help book. This is not a program that Paul is talking about. It's not five steps to Christian contentment or the three secrets of contented people or a seven-minute daily routine to develop sleek, defined, rock-hard contentment. No. Now, the Christian contentment Genuine contentment that Paul is speaking of is learned in the school of God's providential care. In other words, it is learned daily as someone keeps their eyes fixed on Jesus and learns to recognize and trust that every event in your life is under his hand. It means every flat tire, every surprising opportunity, every bump, bruise and scrape all under his control and given to you to draw you closer to him. 
whether it be closer through praise in times of pleasure or closer in dependence in times of need and trouble, every event of your life is another opportunity for you to learn and lean on your need for God and his goodness to you in Christ Jesus. Friends, there you'll find genuine, lasting contentment. And so are you doing that? Friends, are you doing that? Are you learning and leaning and depending on Christ and trusting him? Now, what practical difference does it all make if you actually go this track? I mean, there's lots more to say that I'm going to say. I've, I've got a couple of pages here, but I think I'm going to do a little bit of skimming on the fly. What practical difference does it, mean, does it make if you found or are learning to apply this contentment in Christ? Well, like I said at the very beginning, it changes everything. <laughs> It'll change everything about the way you think. This is where we'll pick up that verses 8 and 9. It'll change the way you think because first you'll begin to consider and then increasingly recognise that there is a difference between what is true and therefore what is false. What is noble and therefore, what's the opposite of noble by the way? Ignoble, thank you, top marks Jeff Ward, teacher in English, you should know. You'll know there's a difference between what is right and what is wrong, what is pure, what is impure, what is lovely, what is unlovely, what is admirable, what is unadmirable. First, there will be a consideration and then an increasing recognition of the difference between those two. And more than that, not just an acknowledgement, but a desire to act in line with these truths revealed by God's word. As Paul mentions in verse 9, you'll seek to put this into practice as you learn to keep in step with God's spirit, the very spirit of God who unites you with Christ. You, You should begin to notice radical changes taking place And they're not changes in your outward circumstances. This is not a prosperity gospel that Paul is teaching. Come to Christ and it'll all be yours. Health, wealth, no. Not a change in your outward circumstances, but a profound change in your heart. After all, that is what is needed to be content, isn't it, friends? What is needed to be content and to be found in a state of contentment? It is a radical reorientation of perspective that I'm unable to engineer. It is a profound transformation at the deepest level of my being that I cannot, I cannot do. It is a complete change of heart that I cannot perform. But God can. And in fact, this is the reason that the Philippians were willing to support Paul's financial ministry his gospel ministry. In fact, it's the reason why they were willing to share their resources with Paul when no other church would, as he mentions in verse 15. It's the reason, actually, if you read in 2 Corinthians 8, 3, when he talks about a church, a Macedonian church, giving beyond their capacity to give, in fact, begging Paul for the privilege of sharing in the partnership of the gospel through the giving of resources. I think that's the Philippian church. It's because they too had come to realise the precious value of Christian contentment in their personal union with Jesus. And as they learned to trust him, it rightly transformed their perspective, even how they spent their money. Look, I'd love to dig into that more, but I'm going to skip it over. You're going to have to think on that a little bit more. But let me finish it up, friends, with this. The secret of contentment. Do you know it? Do you need it? You can't buy it from a catalogue. You can't take it in a pill. You won't find it deep inside yourself. You can't earn it through goodwill. 
but it's yours through trusting Jesus who's paid for all your ill. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Contentment's in him still. I was thinking if we had anyone here called Bill, I would have changed that last word to Bill. But contentment's in him, Bill. But anyway, friends, we're going to leave it there. We're actually going to pray and then we're going to do something that celebrates this contentment that we have in Christ. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But how about I pray first and then we'll rip in. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us firstly to despair in ourselves, to despair in finding satisfaction or contentment in the fleeting, fading, failing promises of uh, the world and rather through faith in Christ Jesus, the gift of faith in Christ Jesus, we would know what it means to be completely content in any and every circumstance, trusting that in him our life is hid, our hope is sure, our sins are forgiven and our eternity awaits. And we pray that you do that for us, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.